Everybody is murderous in their intentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real, but I'm not going... Hello, the internet, and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast a member of the Agora Podcast Network, where we discuss political science and popular culture, as always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodham. Today, we're going to be discussing the idea of the clash of civilizations, an idea that we've talked about often, but have never really gotten into. So we're going to be looking at conflicts and how different peoples enter into conflict with each other, and looking at the question of whether people are destined to fight between ideologies and civilizations. But before we get into that, we have our podcaster of the month for the Agora Network. And again, this is Heather Tiesco, who does a a podcast on Renaissance English history. Um, So for guys who listened to our last episode on Brexit, um, you might have gone to listen to this podcast as well because it gives a very good explanation of the ways that, um, you know, England is going. Um, But it explores the music, culture, the arts, and, of course, maritime exploration uh, because Renaissance England is a very, very interesting place. And, guys, you should definitely go give it a listen. So that's um, Heather Tiesco and the Renaissance English History Podcast on um, ACAST. So, now that that's done... I don't play computer games much anymore. Um, And when I did, I didn't play first-person shooters at all. Well, one, because I really sucked at them. (laughs) I just can't point and click for for shit. And even if I could point and click, I just didn't find any fun in it. Um, There's a decent amount of strategy in team games, I believe, now with Call of Duty and Battlefield doing really well. I think those might be interesting. But... I was more interested in strategy games where the tactics were far superior and a lot more intricate. So I love, you know, building bases, exploring, using perfect armies to outmatch your opponent. And when I got into international relations theory as a student, it really awakened this, <laughs> this geek inside me mm. that uh, saw the world and, and a map of the world sort of like a risk map. Yeah. And I like to see, you know, plan how, how bases could be built and armies expanded and territory conquered through superior military planning. Mm. And, in that frame, I you know started playing games like Command and Conquer Generals. In fact, many games in the Command and Conquer series. Uh, in addition, what else? Warcraft was a favorite, and yeah, Red Alert. But um, outside of that franchise, she's pretty much anything. Stronghold. Love, love the realistic. Um, love the Warhammer series. Oh, I think the best game ever made um, was or oh, is THQ's um, Company of Heroes. So, so any of these games are based on a, a, a landed base camp. So you've got you start off with the, with territory, a small amount of territory. You know, it's a few workers or someone who can build construct buildings, mm. and all buildings either have two purposes: one, they're going to manage resources, or two, they're going to build and intensify military forces. Mm. So you, you, it's definitely military weighted. You know, you don't spend a lot of your time managing the economy, although you do get games like that. But mm. I know Rise of Nations was like that. Um, Stronghold is definitely like that. But the point of managing your economy well is not to win the game, but to build an army and win the game. Yeah. So military conquest is always the, is always the objective. And within that, you, 
you have to explore an, an unseen map. Well, if you play properly, the map should be invisible. Yeah. And when you discover your, your enemy, you've got to, you know, have the superior army. You've got to, uh, you've got certain identifiers through managing, by, through which you manage your strengths against their weaknesses. Mm. So you need to know what, how to fight your enemy, what your enemy's um, strength, strengths are based on. And in many of these games, it's based on the race type that they play with. Yeah. Um, I think the, the best, game that had the most distinguished race types was StarCraft. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, we pretty much every element of, of the race was different to each other. You had the Zerg, the Protoss, and the Terran. Um, and the way that you understood your enemy and the way that you differentiated yourself from your enemy was normally the way in which you would either be defeated by or defeat your enemy. Mm. So there was a strong, you could identify strongly with the different civilizations there. And, you know, people, you'd always pick your favorite. Everyone has a favorite, even though they might be capable of playing multiple races. Yeah. And they would identify with that race and they would, you know, play with its strengths and, um, and be aware and conscious and, and defend its weaknesses really well so that they always came up on top. Mm. And when we, when, when we use that, that kind of, those kind of tactics, when we use those skills, um, in gameplay, in, you know, in boyish or childish computer games, um, it can, to a certain degree, be applied to the clash of civilizations theory, which which you know very well, Peter, um, Samuel Huntington's theory, mm. which you know started off in a in a paper that he wrote in an article and became a book. But um, we'll get into his theory later. But it was the the real time strategy games I'm talking about were particularly popular, well, because nerds like to play them on computers, but computers became popular you know around the early to mid 90s yeah. and computer gaming became popular at the same time mm. and it was exactly in 1992 when Francis Fukuyama uh, a former student of Samuel Huntington became uh, very popular and well known throughout international relations academia and throughout the world actually because of his claim that history had ended mm. um, Peter maybe you want to tell us more about that because I think you know it better than I do yeah well I mean I would like to go back to the games because there's some interesting stuff there. But before that, it's a really interesting history of what happened with this because the Cold War ended. It was the big thing. Um, so you had long... I mean, it, it's it's crazy if you think of it in like a, a long-term historical perspective. You had wars going on basically throughout the whole of human history up until the First World War. And when the First and Second World War happened, it was like human beings realized, holy fuck, we have the ability now to obliterate entire nations. And this, like, we're not talking about nuclear weapons here. I mean, the Battle of Verdun, the Battle of the Bulge, like these battles were intense. So war suddenly became pretty bad. Nobody wanted to do it anymore. Um, if you look at the quotations of people before and after the Second World War, like Roosevelt, who before the Second First World War was like, war is a strengthening thing and it invigorates the spirit. After the First World War, he's like, fuck my life, this is terrible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and also because he lost two, he lost all his sons in the First World War. So, you know, but human, it kind of like the human race realized like, geez, well, this is really bad. And immediately after the Second World War, America and the Soviet Union, the United States of America and the USSR entered into the Cold War. And the reason it was a Cold War was because both sides had nuclear weapons and neither one wanted to enter into a global conflict again. And that whole that, that cold conflict characterized 
international relations from the 1950s um, after the death of Stalin all the way up till the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and eventually the end of the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991. And suddenly you had uh, what was a, before the First World War was a multipolar world, meaning you had a lot of different powers struggling, then changing into a, a bipolar world. Um, and then suddenly into a, a monopolar world um, or unipolar world, which was America is the superpower. And the what happened then was theorists like Samuel Huntington and Francis Fukuyama started to look around and think, you know, what does this mean now for human civilization? Is this have we did we win? Is this is conflict over? Like, have we reached the end of something? And that's what Fukuyama started to talk about when he started to talk about the end of history, which is an idea actually based on Hegel, that through the process of historical evolution, you would eventually reach a point where society would have, through conflict, perfected itself and no further change would be needed. And that's what he means by the end of history, not obviously that history itself ends. Um, and when Francis Fukuyama made that statement, he said that it was liberal democracy and capitalism had ended history. And Samuel Huntington then took a paper that he had written quite some time before, turned it into a book in response to that and said, wait, hold on a second. Liberal democracy hasn't won yet, and especially liberal democracy based on capitalism. There is a civilization and civilizations out there that are opposed to that idea. And he he mainly focused on Middle Eastern Islamic civilization, but he also looked at Chinese and Asian civilizations where principles that were held dear to those civilizations were diametrically opposed to Western concepts of democracy and capitalism. Um, and well, that's where the classic some, I think it's an oversimplification. Uh, they're not diametrically opposed, but they were, some of them were, but they were mostly just alternatives that the world wasn't aware of or not strongly aware of at that time. Well, yes, but also I would disagree. So uh, this is something that I, I struggle with with Huntington himself in that he says that there are – that some things in Middle Eastern culture are absolutely opposite. So, for instance, the idea of a state that is theologically controlled um, is, is, is anti-Western democratic thinking. Um, those two things cannot exist at the same time. So th there are contradictions that need to be solved. Is, is what Huntington? No, says. but the, the principle. But the principles that those civilizations hold dear are not the principles of anti-Westernism. Sure, they just they they formed anti-Western opinions because their principles were alternative and weren't being recognized and used to, you know, in the universalization of the of Oh, the I, see, I see what you're saying, yes. The global norms weren't based on these alternative principles. Yes, I agree. So uh, what I meant was not that um, the principles being held by other civilizations are opposed to the West. What I meant was that the two principles, the Western principles and other principles, are incompatible, is more what I was saying. That they're not necessarily opposed to each other, but they're like oil and water. They don't, they can't mix. That's what Huntington was saying. I think that there might be obviously room for discussion, which is why we're having this episode. Um, I, well, I think he, he, he initiated that discussion in his book because, yeah, his article was a little more black and white like yeah. that, but in his book he he becomes a bit more tolerant. Well, not he becomes more tolerant, but he turns down the the ability of civilizations 
um, to to fight or to fight inevitably. Mm. And he proposes that in certain global c- circumstances, with the careful balancing of power, cultures can learn to cooperate and exist peacefully. Of course, they can. Um, I mean, we've seen that. No, I know it's of course, but I mean, if we want, you know, if we want to be true to representing Huntington here, we don't really want to be sued again. <laughs> Huntington, fuck off. <laughs> Because we know James Cameron's coming for us. Yeah, <laughs> we know Jackie, Jackie Chan's coming, coming for us. <laughs> um, fucking, they can come, Jackie Chan. I'll kick that guy's ass. Fucking think. <laughs> I'll 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 beat him every day of the week <laughs> in Warcraft Three. <laughs> but this is where I think it's interesting that you you started to bring up games because there is a story behind the Clash of Civilizations as well, and that is the oh, book. Yeah? The book was funded to uh, it, it wasn't influenced, but it was funded to a large extent by the CIA, and because the CIA wanted Huntington to do an analysis of why uh, who was the next great threat to American security, and oh well, forget about being sued. We're about to be killed. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, so like, but it, the CIA wasn't saying, say that they are the threat. They were just saying, look, the Cold War is over. We won. Capitalism won out against communism. Cool. Go USA. Go West. Um, now who's, who's the next, who's the next big baddie on, on the scene? And Samuel Huntington then did this, did this analysis, which was based on further analysis. But why this is interesting to the games is that when we, like, when you look at games and you bring in a little bit of game theory, all games, computer games, are zero sum, meaning that you either win or you die. There are there is no intermediary. So, like, if you look at a game like Risk, <laughs> can you imagine in Age of Empires if you get to the point where you, you hear Hololo and it's like, quit, like guys, let's be allies, <laughs> let's piece this one out. <laughs> Please don't convert any of my personal elephants. Exactly. Like, there's no long-standing alliances, and that's that's one of the things that. I love playing Risk as a board game. And I love it because you get into a situation where you have complex alliances starting to form. But there's a problem with those alliances, and that is it is always... The zero sum. The zero sum. It is always known that at the end of the day, every single person on that board is going to try and eliminate everybody else. That's a little bit different from the way that the world works because the international arena is but not- it's such a strong and influential principle in game theory like you say in in real life because people tend to think what do we, you know to understand zero sum uh tactics properly you need to understand that um, people then see power as finite mm. that as any gain in power by another civilization or another faction or another alliance is a relative loss in my power mm. Uh, so I need to continuously be in control of the majority of power to be, you know, to be in control of the world, to, to, to have the most influence in the world and to allow other states and other parties to get away with, you know, strategic alliances and arms trades and, you know, building up their relative power and even their economic power is, is seen to my detriment, which is not necessarily the case, but it's such an influential principle and it creates such a strong sense of paranoia. In the international system, mm. that game theory, you know, is is a very useful means of, of describing certain and, and analyzing many world events. Yeah, exactly. And but see, the other thing is, is that there is a little bit of a difference in that civilizations, let, you know, let's categorize them as that, are not looking for the extermination of every other civilization. 
their primary focus is survival. And if you're saying, okay, we want to survive, how do we best survive? The best way to survive is to make sure that you hold the most amount of power. I mean, any civilization is going to attempt to make the world a unipolar world in which they are the superpower. America succeeded. Well done, America. But when after that, that's when... Did you mean the United States? Oh, God, fuck it. I'm so sorry. The United States succeeded. Um, but after that, there's no... Uh, the United States is not looking for the extermination of every other civilization on the planet because that would be crazy. They're very happy and comfortable where they are right now as the superpower of a unipolar system, although that's definitely changing. But in a game, you're not. So, for instance, in Risk, what every single fucking person tries to do in Risk is, because they think it's a great idea, is to take Australia and then use that as a staging point for everybody else to into Asia, which is a dumb idea because nobody can ever control Asia ever. It's impossible. Watch the best way thing to do, and I'm going to give you guys the best way. But to kudos to Genghis Khan for trying. Yeah, he probably got the closest. Uh, <laughs> actually, yeah. Soviet Union did pretty well. <laughs> um, but the best thing to do is actually to unite North America first, because um, it's only got three points of entry, um, but the most amount of land to entry point ratio. And from there, you can actually take over the entire world. It's a pretty safe bet that you can win. The thing is, is that once you've united North America, in real terms of the world, you'd be like, sweet, I'm, I'm piecing out, I'm done. Um, but in risk, zero-sum terms, you're like, cool, I've now consolidated my base. I'm now going to wipe out everybody else. So, And when you start thinking like that in terms of international relations, you can get into some pretty hairy situations. And I think that's sometimes what happens when people read the clash of civilizations. They don't see it as two powers conflicting over the same power resource pool. They see it as an attempt to exterminate one or the other. I, I agree. I think it's such a dangerous... Um theory to use in international relations and those games like Risk um, and Rise of Nations um, that prioritize territory and territorial control is is more I think was based more on a view of combat and military warfare mm -hmm. in 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 uh, well, medieval and, and modern Europe when the continent was still figuring out its nationalist borders trying to establish territories and states based on territories and and, and um, and build up their state capabilities so that they were able to, you know, s secure, um, defend the security of their states, of their, of their borders. Mm. So I'm getting a bit of tongue twister there. Just, it seems quite obvious. And mm -hmm. um, when the international system doesn't work like that anymore and those norms and principles have, have died, the, the, the point of having a state is not to survive. Mm. The point of having a state is to thrive, is to be able to give your, your citizens the best life that you could possibly give them. Yeah. And, uh, and there's, a, and there's an assumption. The assumption has changed from inevitable destruction to one of inevitable cooperation because, as we know, no democracies have ever gone to war with each other. Mm -hmm. So with Francis, so to bring this back to the narrative of Fukuyama versus Huntington, Fukuyama is saying that the ideology, the clash of ideologies of Western capitalism, um, liberal democracies and human rights has triumphed over command economies and communism. Yeah. And therefore that reason that had, that was the 
culmination of human history is now over. That that reason to fight is now dissipated, and there is and there's no more reason to have a war based on ideology. Yeah, that we we will still have you know significant events and conflict, um, punctuating human history with uh, you know with with commentary, but that we wouldn't have this. The, this Hegelian dialectic of, of, of ideologies anymore. Exactly. Um, which, and I want to know your opinion on that. Do you think that he was right? Yes, actually I do. And I, I think a lot of people hate me or disagree with me strongly for that. But I, I think it's also because there's a lot of misunderstanding um, with Fukuyama. And Fukuyama himself, when you read The End of History and the Last Man, which is uh, the book that he wrote about this, it was very... Strong. He was very adamant. Um, you know, he took a very strong position on this. He has softened that position a lot. So, for instance, he, I mean, he, as you said, he wrote it in 1992. Uh, so, you know, a lot of, obviously, 9-11 hadn't happened. He, you know, the second Gulf War hadn't happened. And he has recanted a certain amount by saying that he still believes that capitalist liberal democracy is still the end of history. However, that that is not necessarily hap, you know, ready to be accepted by everybody right now. There are alternatives and alternative modernities within the world. So the thing that I think makes Fukuyama so interesting is that he doesn't necessarily say that you have to be a c- completely American-style Western democracy because only America has a completely American-style Western democracy. Every single European country in the world has a slightly different democracy. And in fact, America's political system is very different from the way the rest of the democratic world operates. The capitalist system that America has is also very different from the way the rest of the world operates. Um, if you compare, for instance, America, capitalist system, to Sweden, which is a capitalist system, also both liberal democracies, but Sweden operates a lot better because it has much more oversight over its capitalist economies. And so I think that what he, what a lot of people think when they see Fukuyama is like, oh, we all have to be like America. And that's never what he said. That's, I don't think that's ever what he wanted to bring across. But what he was saying is that, look, we've reached a point now where we all acknowledge that human individuals are all universally equal. They should all be afforded the same basic human rights, and they should all be afforded a say in their political system. That's liberal democracy. You're done. It's, it's, you know, if we, if everybody agrees on that, you're over. And on top of that, he's saying, if we want to innovate and we want to create good economies, we need to have certain things in place. We need to have surplus production. We need to have, um, you know, access to capital. And in order for that to be in place, we need to have private property rights secured and we need to have other economic rights secured. We need to have patent rights. Those things have to be in place for capitalist economies to grow and capital Capitalist economies at this point are the only economies that have shown the ability to reach a mass amount of people. Yes, they generate a huge amount of problems as well, but those problems can be solved without getting rid of the system. So I completely agree with Fukuyama. I do not see, however, why those there could not be a Middle Eastern version of a capitalist Western, a capitalist liberal democracy, or a African version, or an Asian version. Well, just like me talking about computer games, you sound totally stuck in the 90s. Okay, guys. So just uh, while we're talking about books, The Clash of Civilizations is something that you should definitely go and read, as well as The End of History and the Last Man, both of which are available 
on Audible. So Audible is a app service that you can download to your phone and get access to a hundred. It's Amazon's um, ebook service. Yeah, it's Amazon's ebook service, and you can get access to a hundred and eighty thousand audiobooks. So for those of you who don't have time to read through all the books that we recommend to you, which I certainly do not. So what I do is while I'm driving and while I'm doing chores and doing the dishes, I listen to audiobooks on my phone. And the one that we're recommending to you today is definitely The Clash of Civilizations as well as The End of History and The Last Man. And guys, we need you but, to support but this podcast. Amazon, but you have access to Amazon's library of 180,000 books. Yeah. So you don't have to listen to whatever we tell you to listen to. What, the point want. is, whatever <laughs> you decide to listen to, just make sure you sign up to Audible's free trial yeah. through our link. So go to www dot audibletrial.com is that it peter forward slash lol yeah so www.audibletrial.com forward slash lol guys that's like the most simple access url ever so when you go there you you want to sign up you get a free your first month is free you get a free book you can go ahead and pick whatever book you like out of the library and if and when you sign up and pay for the following month, a portion of of the proceeds come to us as a sponsorship. So you'd really be supporting the podcast. Yeah, we'd appreciate that. And uh, we we both use Audible. We find it's just it's just too convenient to ignore. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I don't think we'd ever use uh, advertise a product on this uh, podcast that we didn't actually use personally. Um, so. Oh, I mean, we could talk about tampons. I don't know, whatever you want. <laughs> but guys, go and have a, <laughs> guys, go there, support the podcast, please, so that we continue to keep growing and bring you even more cool stuff. Um, let's get back to it, Brock. So, so Peter, now that you've, um, ransom. displayed your naivety for the world to hear, uh, <laughs> no, I would be, uh, mistaken to not admit the, persuasiveness of Fukuyama's argument that human dignity and equality and freedom are certainly um, principles that we won't that we shouldn't see leave the world system and shouldn't it should subside as global influ- influences mm. but I don't think it's the end of, of ideological conflicts or ideological bulges or cleavages in the world and to a certain extent I'm going to use Huntington's own clash of civilizations to argue that point. Mm-hmm. But to understand uh, the clash of civilizations, Huntington says we, we might not have a clash of ideologies anymore. That being that, you know, Marxism is dead and socialism might still have certain influences in countries, but it's going to be within, uh, you know, legislative political processes. It's going to be through political parties and the state is not going anywhere. Mm. So it's not to say that socialism is dead. It's just to say that Marxist theory um, no longer has the sway that it did with communist states. But clearly, you know, these, this was written before 2000 when China's rise was fully recognized. Mm. And, um, and so Fukuyama, uh, Fukuyama, so Huntington focused more on the rise of Arab and particularly Middle Eastern and Islamic um, power and conflict and opposition to the West. Mm. So he characterized well many the the various regions of the world, but the one that people mostly comment on or react to is his depiction of how Islamic states in the Middle East um, contain such a different set of values and such a different set of political principles mm. to the Western states, and this he predicted would lead to another global conflict. Mm. So. 
I think that a good um, piece of popular culture, or at least a film, I don't really think it's true popular culture, but since it's Hollywood's film, we have to mention it, is Body of Lies with Robert, uh, I was going to say Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> with Leonardo DiCaprio, mm. uh, and Russell my favourite actor, Russell Crowe. And Mark Strong. Yeah. Who, um, who, who, who did Mark Strong play? He's the um, head of Jordanian intelligence. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. Which, He's wearing a lot of makeup. I now, that. I want to get into how this movie itself is the perfect example of the Clash of Civilizations. Or, I don't know, it's, it's a roundabout thing. But there are some incredibly talented, um, you know, Middle Eastern actors or people from Jordan and people from Saudi Arabia and people from all over the world who I don't they're, they're American fine I don't give a shit you want to hire people from why would you hire Mark Strong a British man to play the head of Jordanian intelligence um, and there is something very interesting in that movie is that for all the good guys you know all the protagonists of that movie the only one that's actually and the movie is set in the Middle East um, you know it's set in Jordan it's set in Iraq and Kuwait the only the only protagonist who's played by a Middle Eastern person is the love interest of Leonardo DiCaprio. So all the good guys are Westerners, and all the bad guys, the actual actors, they're all played by Middle Eastern actors. So I find that very interesting that Hollywood still has trouble casting, um, you know, in Middle Eastern people to play those roles, and um, you yeah. know, in in that the protagonists are still Westerners. Um, so I think yeah. that that's a, a good example of how... Well, it still offends me that the that the rebels and the Rebel Alliance are all American. <laughs> the Galactic Empire played by British actors. <laughs> but that's just George Lucas not being able to get over his, uh, you know, the imperialism tendency. <laughs> his nationalism. <laughs> but, so, the thing is, is that, you know, the Clash of Civilizations is such an interesting and also very persuasive argument. But what I, what I, like, what I found was Body of Lies, which the message that the movie was trying to get across is that if you, the the movie itself is actually almost a thesis against the class of civilizations, because you can see Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. is kind of caught between two, two groups. One is, you know, the CIA yeah. and the American intelligence services led by Russell Crowe, who is a complete yeah. asshole. He's just looking out for American interests the other group is obviously the terrorists who are carrying out these actions. And Leonardo DiCaprio and his love interest are caught in the middle between these two groups, basically just trying to live their lives. Um, obviously, Leonardo DiCaprio is working for the American intelligence. But when we get confronted with people on the ground in the Middle East, they're... The, the movie is trying to show us they're not different from us. They're not different from the West. They are people who are attempting to live and work as best they can. Their values also allow them to integrate quite successfully with a Western ideology because they often talk about moving backwards and forwards between America. Um, and we see, you know, the building projects going on in Dubai and how, you know, American and Western business interests are intermingling with Middle Eastern business interests. So if anything, the movie showing that perhaps this clash of civilizations is something that goes on at a political level, not at a social or even civilizational cultural level. No, wait, you overstepped one there. Um, culturally, mm, I agree with you individually and in that the clash of civilizations is a political clash. Mm. Um, but culturally, I think they're very different. Yes, but I mean, different cultures doesn't necessarily mean that they will clash. 
I mean, there are hundreds of different cultures in Europe. They're all part of a of a grand European culture, definitely. I mean, look at South Africa. South Africa doesn't have what we would necessarily yes. call no, a South I see African what you're saying. culture. That just because you have different cultures doesn't mean you're going to have a conflict. No, I agree with you, but um, we should just be careful in saying, you know, because we in the, in the film depicts, um, you know, people in the Middle East living in, in, in a means, living by a means that would be cooperative and it would be, you know, tolerant and um, easy to to integrate with uh, with Westerners, but and that's not necessarily going to lead to conflict. It might raise certain tensions. I think when politics comes to the fore, but I do agree with you that the the clash is not going to exist on necessarily on on cultural levels, which is what which is what Huntington argues. You know, his his clash of civilizations is based on five points of protagonism, oh, sorry, of antagonism. And those are, he, he, he lines up, well, he, he classifies or dictates that civilization is made up of your cultural identity, your history, your traditions, your language, and your religion. So if he's saying that civilizations are going to clash because they're different, he's saying that they're going to be different on all those levels. And he hasn't broken them, those levels down or those Tenets, sorry, not levels. Those tenets, he's going, to, he's going to say that they're different to other civilizations, not on individual political levels, but on the uh, based on these things that I've just listed. Um, so the point, the point here being that, regardless of whether your politics or your society or your economies are capable of integrating or not, whether your people are capable of integrating, it's got nothing to do with that. According to Huntington, as long as you have as long as you identify with a different culture, you don't have a shared history, um, you have different traditions, you speak a different language, and your religions are different. Just different, not antagonistic, just different. As long as those things are different, then then civilizations are going to go to war. And see, do you think do you think that the West I mean so the Western civilization, which I've I've used time and time again at this point. When, when we talk about the Western civilization, we are not just talking about America. We are talking about Europe, um, America, Canada, Australia, um, to a certain extent, maybe South Africa, you know, the, the Western influence of the world, you know, the whole of Europe, Germany, and all of that. So that, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the West. Do you think that the West is at war with Islamic culture, the so Western civilization, is at war with the Islamic civilization? Oof. I mean, I know it's a, it's a huge question, but I was just wondering... What- I think if you... Yeah, it's a huge question, but let's not use at war, because I don't... That's not a phrase that, that Huntington uses a lot. So, does the Western civilization... Is the Western, uh, Western civilization in conflict with the Middle East? Um, or what he calls the Muslim world? I would say yes. If you'd asked me this question six months ago, I'd probably say no. Um, but there's just, there's, there's been too many violent interactions between the two civilizations. And yeah, I, I'm being, you know, I'm, I'm generalizing a lot because, you know, the, the violence that's, that, that's carried out these days is not representative of the entire Muslim world at all. You know, it's, it's, uh, we recognize that it's, it's extremists and it's a small, small group of radicals. But that they are influential enough to characterize the way that the Western, that Western civilization 
approaches and deals with the entire Muslim world. So because it's affecting all Muslims and it's being responded to fairly coherently or it's fairly uniformly by all states in the Western world, I would say there is a conflict. And this but is... You see, this is why... It's very nuanced. Yeah. I mean, this this is hugely nuanced. And I think that, you know, it's so easy to, to deride Samuel Huntington at this point. I think that Samuel Huntington himself was very much aware of this nuance. And I think that he is probably quite saddened by the way his work has been used. Because this is... I, I have a feeling that there is a lot of anger, and rightly so, on the side of, you know, Islamic civilization. Um, and especially just being called Islamic civilization itself is it, it's it's almost you know it's pigeonholing. If, if you know if somebody said to me yeah. you are doing what you do because of Western civilization, I'd be like, "Fuck you, dude! I grew up in South Africa. Mm. I live in Australia. Like I am as different from a Frenchman as you know from I, I have much more in common with Zulu people in South Africa than I do with French people now." Um, but I'm a yeah. product of Western civilization. So there is an, there is an issue there. You know, it's this otherization of people. But my other problem. Yes, it is definitely pigeonholing. Yeah. yeah. My other problem with this is that, as you said, the terrorist attacks do not, you know, terrorist actions do not represent the majority. It doesn't even represent, you know, 1% of the, of the people who live in that region. Uh, you know, obviously the victims of those people. Well, actually, there's some interesting, there's some interesting data on that. And I have to tell you now, it's it's a lot more than one percent, oh, really? according to the data. You know, data is always questionable, and data usually comes from security sources. So it's people like the CIA mm. who might be inflating their numbers a bit. But you know, come, uh, there are numbers floating around that as much as twenty five percent of uh, Muslims living in 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 the Middle East can be considered radical. Well, so like how do you define I, radical? I have nothing to compare that to, but. I'm I'm of the, I'm of the opinion that it's a, it's a bit more than one percent. Okay, so yeah, like let's. What, what I'm saying is that the actual number of people in the region who would who turn to violent action is a fairly low number in terms of population. I mean, being radicalized is there's. I mean, if you calculate how many radical right wing Americans are there, you know, it's probably you know ten ten fifteen percent of the population. That doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be violent um, or turn to terrorism. But that's a completely different context. Sure, sure. So, okay. And we, we're being bogged down in numbers now, and this is something we never do. Yeah, so exactly. Let's move on. Um, so, but the, the, the thing here is that I, I, have a, I have struggled to find the causes of this conflict. And this is where I question, is, it, is the conflict caused by a class of civilizations, or is the class of civilizations caused by interference. So, for instance, you had Ottoman civilization, which only ended in the, at, you know, in the First World War, living alongside European civilization for centuries, um, with obviously crusades, you know, intermittently put, put in, in the middle there every couple of hundred years. Yeah, um, massive crusades. Massive, yeah, like large crusades. But were those crusades... Uh, and the invasion of the Ottoman Empire. The, the invasion of the Ottoman Empire by who? By, no, by 
the Ottomans. Oh yeah, when, no, sure. When Turkey but I don't think that though. The, there was like there's a huge amount of conflict. Yeah, no, but I'm not. I'm not saying there wasn't a large amount of conflict. What I'm saying is there wasn't necessarily a clash of civilizations. There was a huge amount of conflict going on in Europe at the same time. You don't call the conflicts between France and Germany a clash of civilizations. Um, just they happen to be different civilizations that it, that have different religious aspects. I don't think that it was necessarily a class of civilizations, even when the Crusades is brought into it. Religion was used as a, a really good way of getting people to fight. But, I mean, history and all the records show that the Pope was very interested in gaining lands in the Middle East, as were the knights who went to go yeah. and fight there. What I'm saying is that this... This conflict has existed. Conflict between the regions has existed for centuries. Yeah. Now, when Samuel Huntington wrote his work, it caused a huge amount of funding to go to the CIA and the CIA to impose a large amount of, um, you know, intelligence services into the Middle East. Could it be that though that itself has caused strife in the fact that we know that Osama bin Laden was at one point a patron of the U.S. government in that the U.S. government was arming his group in order to defeat other security threats. Now, I'm not getting into, uh, you know, conspiracy stuff, but what I'm saying is, is it the result of a class of civilizations? Or if America had not gotten involved in the Middle East in the first place and the West hadn't stuck their nose in and England hadn't divided it up and, you know, after the fall of the Ottoman Empire, would we just have two civilizations living side by side with normal political conflicts, um, I, I again, I also find that argument persuasive. I find it more persuasive than the end of history, mm. um, because that speaks to terms of power, and and I'm a big believer in the balance of power. And as as soon as the United States adopted its supremacy as the unipolar world leader. Mm. It, uh, it 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 went through th- through some growing pains and didn't really make the best fo- foreign policy decisions, and it could be argued, and I'd say strongly argued, that it brought a lot of its insecurities upon itself. Yeah. Um, going back to you know the game of risk, or if I was the command and conqueror of the of North America, you, you only have three entry points. Keep to yourself. In, in the, in the isolationism practiced by the United States. In the 1800s was a perfect strategy for independence mm. and for for thriving growth rate. You would be a, I think you can be a perfectly happy and satisfied state by by practicing that foreign, that foreign policy. Mm. However, that would bring about it would bring about a multipolar world order, and it might have upset the balance of power. So you either go, so you either have to focus as, as the United States. They would either either have had to focus on. Um, transitioning to a multipolar world order peacefully by stepping back, yeah. or it would have to become a world leader by stepping forward. And in this case, well, in you know, in our universe, <laughs> it stepped forward militarily, and um, and gave rise, or at least it, it allowed arguments like the class of civilizations to gain weight um, in international relations theory and academia and in practice. Yeah. So to answer your question, yes, I do think to a certain extent it brought it, on, it brought the, you know the clash upon itself, and interference caused that clash. Mm. Um, what I think is a more interesting question is whether or not that uh, interference is could be used to support the argument that ideology will never again be um, a source of conflict, whether the end of history. So in a sense, I'm returning to the question I asked you earlier. Do you think that history is truly ended? 
if we understand that civilizations are going to rise again, they're going to um, organize themselves geographically the way Huntington did, um, could they develop their own ideological sets in which their civilizations play a role, play a political role in ordering the societies and and in ordering the global system so that conflict in the future becomes around ide- ideology based on your upon civilization i think i think what i'm doing is i'm i'm simplifying everything to say do you think that civilization can determine your 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 global power look i'm what i'm i'm definitely not saying that ideology will not be a source of conflict in the future cuz making that claim would be just really dumb um, I mean, in fact, we have an ideological conflict going on right now. ISIS is but you, ideolo- but, ideological. But you said conflict. you believe Francis Fukuyama in the end of history. I believe Francis Fukuyama in saying that liberal democracy and capitalist um, ec- economies is the end of history. That, but I disagree with Fukuyama in saying that we've reached that point. We've glimpsed the end of history, but we haven't reached there yet. Um, so... The reason I say that is Marxism as a, uh, let's say communism rather, communism is defunct. It doesn't work. It's already been proven this does not work. Um, I don't think that there is any other ideology that has shown its ability to be superior to liberal democracy in any way, which means that because liberal democracy paired with capitalism is more of an efficient way of running a society, any conflict that it gets into with any other ideology, it is necessarily going to win. So, for instance, let's look at the ideological conflict going on at the moment. ISIS is an ideological group. It has a very strong ideology about a universal caliphate. Um, Now, whether we're talking about ideology or a civilization, the fact is it represents a very specific ideology even within its own civilization. So within a Islamic civilization, it is opposed to other um, groups within that civilization. So it's a definitely an ideological issue. Now, if, if it, it, it has declared itself as an opponent against Western ideology and Western modes of civilization, the fact is, is that the West doesn't want to go in and just obliterate it. But if it wanted to, it absolutely could. If the United States declared an all-out total war against ISIS, it would obliterate ISIS within a day. Um, you know, obviously, but then you have to... Deal within with a day. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if America had launched its complete army against ISIS, it could obliterate their armed forces very quickly. I think a day is... I mean, within a couple of days, they managed to, within, a, within a week, they managed to take down Saddam Hussein's regime. They then had to deal with all the insurgency. That's the problem. I mean, but those are, you know, those are logistical issues that need to be dealt with. From an ideological perspective. Those are logistical issues, <laughs> Peter. <laughs> I'm talking about, like, from a war. Don't make me sound like an asshole. Li- I'm talking about as a military commander. <laughs> You're doing that all on your own, brother. <laughs> I'm saying, logistical, from an ideological stamping out insurgents is a logistical West, issue. <laughs> From an ideological perspective, liberal democracy has proven to be the most efficient model of operating a society. No other ideology can stand in the West. No, in the world. In the world, the either you either you're going to sound like a complete um, imperialist, (laughs) or you're going to have to overweight the ability of liberal democracy to adapt to other geographical regions. So Huntington classified, you know, South and Central America. As Latin America, yeah, and 
he's got the you know the orthodox section of the form of Soviet Union and Yugoslavia yeah. and parts of Eastern Europe. Um, he's got the Eastern world broken down, you know, to Buddhism, Confucianism, Hindu uh, civilization in Japan. Plus he's got the Muslim world, which we've been speaking about mostly. Plus he's got Sub-Saharan Africa. And he's got a couple of, um, other, what do you call, fractious or fractious states or fractious regions. Yeah. You know, we, um, they haven't, they haven't quite sided with one particular civilization. Yeah. But all of these regions have their own modes. Of governing. They have their own political orders. They have their own ideas about the way politics should govern society. They've got, and, and their economies are equally, um, you know, adapted and, and, um, unique. So, so to say that liberal democracy is the most efficient means of governing societies, you're either going to have to say that it should be exported to the rest of the world and they'll have to convert, or you need to say that liberal democracy in, in an African sense is what's best for Africa. So Africa would have to make it, Sub-Saharan Africa or the Middle East would have to make its own form of liberal democracy and that would be best for it. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. That's what I said from the beginning. Liberal democracy. But don't you think that's, don't you think, cause that my, my opinion, what I was going to say earlier is my opinion, my response to that, to Huntington would be that is watering down liberal democracy so strongly that you might as well just have, um, just stick with clash of ideologies. Um, and I'd say that to Fukuyama as well, because you can see that the, that Sub-Saharan Africa and the African continent on the whole, as well as Latin America and the Middle East and, you know, all of these different regions, they're all struggling with democracy. They, they don't, uh, very few of them, there are, there are a bunch, but, but a few that adopted as their natural means of ordering society. They have had to make concessions, many concessions along the way. And they, you know, they'll never look as, as liberal as, as democracy can be. Um, well, I have having an answer, said that, an they also don't, you know, they don't, okay, well, what's your answer? My, so, okay, this is getting into a whole other thing, and, and perhaps we should do a podcast on this, but my, my theory is, this is my theory for my thesis, and this is, uh, you know, what I work on, and the reason that liberal democracy, no, see, the reason that these democratic reforms don't work is essentially because they have attempt, you know, developmental thinkers and people who have attempted to apply liberal democracy are not applying liberal democracy. They are applying American and European political institutions and think that that is the same as applying liberal democracy. But it's not. It's not the same thing. So, for instance, look at Japan. Japan is a very capitalist economy. Um, they embrace that. Great. You're done. They also have a fairly liberal democracy. They have a democratic society. Now, it's liberal in the way that they interpret, you know, liberalism. Each community has their own way of, do, of doing things. Each, each person is, um, uh, I'm losing my words. I have to edit this out. Um, each community is, is subject to the, each person is subject to the will of the community. Now, from a point of view of Western liberal ideology, that doesn't seem to make sense, but it's still a Japanese idea of liberalism in that people are still happy and they're still willing to make those choices. Now, if you look at a country like Botswana, for instance, that has been able to kind of meld these ideas of African community ideas with ideas of democracy. I don't see why these things are incompatible, and I don't see why they're incompatible in the Middle East. This, but this copy-paste model of putting American institutions into places like Ethiopia, that fails, and there you have high levels of corruption. No, it, you know, I also, you know, 
study this um, quite yeah. a lot, and it, I'd be interested in, to engage in it. But it is it is off topic, and I, you know, as much as we're interested in world history um, and transformation, uh, we, it doesn't help us answer the question of whether we think class of civilization the class of civilizations is inevitable. Um. Okay, look, I think I've, 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 I've made my claim. I think Luke. that I, I, I lie down with my body of lies argument, and I think that the clash of civilizations is not inevitable. I think that political conflict over resources is probably, you know, likely. Um, I do not think that a, a clash of civilizations, I mean, unless you consider what we have now as a clash of civilizations, um, in which case, well, it's already happened, so you're done. But I don't think that what we have now is a class of civilizations. I think what we have now is a lot of people being legitimately angry with um, Western intervention as political processes, and that has led to um, to conflict. And I don't necessarily think that that's a class of civilization. I don't. I think that the Americans and the Westerners who got involved would be equally as angry if another power were to intervene in their own group. So, you know, you could imagine something like, imagine China getting involved in Mexican political processes in order to weaken America or to look after its own interests. And if that led to a conflict within the within Central America, that would be a serious problem for America. And I don't see why, you know, the United States, and I don't see why they wouldn't get involved with any form of conflict with China. And then, I mean, would you consider that a clash of civilizations? I don't necessarily think so. These are politically expedient terms. So my answer to the question, is a clash of civilizations inevitable? My answer is no, it's not inevitable. I agree with you. Um, I don't think it's inevitable. The, um, the resources being limited would always be a factor for, for countries going to war with each other. Yeah. Um, but it is, it's, although it's not inevitable, it's probable. Um, and I think that, uh, with the, with the ruling out of ideology, I'm not prepared to rule ideology out, but if I had to, and say that they're not, that states, that states are going to embrace democracy of some sort. And they're not going to fight about it because democracies don't go to war with each other. Mm. Then they will go to, they'll find a means of conflict based on their, their civilizational differences. So it, it will be a high, ex, highly explanatory factor, mm. but it's not necessarily going to lead us to conflict. I do believe that there is enough. I don't believe that this, that the international system, um, has, has, uh, can be played as a zero sum game. Yeah. Um, if I, you know, if, if I, if, if it had to be played like a computer game, then of course you're going to have power, uh, power battles and you're going to have conflict. But the space for cooperation and, um, see, cooperation works on a political scale because you can make concessions and you can interact legally and you can, um, you can have binding, um, treaties between states which you know they, they forsake anyway but you can have some means of interacting politically and legally whereas on a civilizational level um there, there's just there's there's no binding there's no limited power there tolerance can be practiced and mm. cooperation can be practiced people can get along and that's not to say that they will that, that there will be no conflict it's just that i i don't think that it's inevitable that they're going to fight uh 
Yeah, so it's it's an interesting discussion. I I, I sound very undecided, and I feel very undecided. Well, I think it's, that um, these are very you know it's it, it's human nature. It's like it's whatever the humans want to do. If they, if they want to go to war, they'll go to war for whatever reason they choose. And I think that if they're going to choose something, then cultural differences will be a lot higher up on the list than they used to be. Mm. But, but I also I, I think that you know to end off, these are very sensitive topics. And uh, to anybody listening who, who thinks that we might have sounded a bit hard ass about this stuff, obviously. You know, we are completely sensitive to the cultural stuff that's going on and how difficult it is for people living in the Middle East um, and, you know, how angry you are rightly at, at America and the West for getting involved. But just to end on a hopeful note, you know, I don't think that it's inevitable. I think that human beings have the ability to to cooperate when they need to. And looking at the data as it exists now, all data shows that conflict is on the decrease. Um, even in areas that are conflict-ridden, like the Middle East, um, you know, you might get upsurges um, every now and then, but the trend over the last 100 years has been, you know, inevitably downwards, which is great. I mean, it's fucking awesome. I, I think that our, you know, our ability for cooperation far um, exceeds what we often think it is. Um, and that, that makes, you know, it makes me hopeful for, for what's going to happen in the future. But maybe I'm just a little bit too idealistic about humanity. No, I, sh- I share your idealism. I think when it comes to political states, I'm less idealistic because they do approach the game as a more zero sum, in a more zero sum manner. But people have a tendency to be more cooperative because, you know, they feel the realities of battle more. They feel the realities of combat and conflict more. Mm. They'd much rather get along. Yeah. It's just that when they do just get upset about something, they're going to fight about it. I think nowadays it's going to be less likely because they're a commie and more likely because they, they come from a different part of the world. Yeah. And guys, I mean, I think that they don't share the same civilizational commonalities. Exactly. And, you know, at the end of the day, everybody's human. And everybody's just trying to no shit get on with it. Everybody really no, like I know people Peter, who aren't. Human. I didn't know that. I do know people who aren't human. <laughs> um, my neighbor is actually one of those aliens from Independence Day. Uh, he keeps leaving his dustbins <laughs> out. Fucking asshole. Uh, and then he blows up my monument. Listen like to you, <laughs> living in Australia. Oh, my neighbor leaves their dustbin out. My name has robbed me, Peter. My neighbor's put a gun to my head. Oh, gee, I'm sorry. Okay, God. Um, guys, I, I think I, this is a very sensitive topic and a very interesting, subtle one. I'd love to hear your, um, your input to this. Either send us an email or get us on Facebook. Um, it's really the best way to have conversations with us. I'd love to hear what you've got to say. Yes, especially in how you would rank civilizational, uh, similarities or differences, such as, you know, culture and history and all those other things we mentioned. How important do you think they are in human conflict and, um, historical transformation? Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. So send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. That's L-A-N-D-S-O-F. L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast and if you didn't listen to that directly then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes Hope you enjoyed it guys, thanks so much